Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. And again, Shabbat Shalom. All right, so now, Revelation 14. And like I said, we don't have time to read the whole chapter at an hour long or so lesson. So I'm going to depend upon you going forward as, as we're reading here more about the sharp sickle and the angel with the power over fire. I'm going to depend upon you to go back and reread Revelation chapter 14 very carefully, verse by verse. I'm just going to pick out a couple of passages here and try to help you get started on that process. My point here is not to point out every similarity, but it's to get you started, to kind of push you in that direction with some momentum. And I know you're a good enough student that you're going to sit down and you are going to take this word for word, and you're going to start going back and making these connections. And you're just, you're going to have your own wonderful written notes when this is all over with, or maybe on your computer. Who, who, who knows how people do things nowadays? I just learn more when I write it with my hands rather than typing. And I think there's a different part of my brain engaged. So let's, for context, for just starting out context of the sharp sickle, let's look at the first verse of Revelation 14, Revelation 14, 1, and then we're going to slide down to verses 9 through 10. It says, then I looked and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Okay, now just imagine in your mind, where do the tefillin go? Remember, you shall, shall write them on your forehead. You shall write them on your hands. It's part of the greatest commandment. It's the Shema, Hero Israel. Well, these are the people who have apparently accomplished this great commandment. They have written his name on their foreheads. They have written his name on their hands and on their arms and on their fingers. They have bound them there. You shall bind them. And so again, when is this highly suggested time for saying the Shema? The first watch of the night to remind you to have his name written on your forehead to remind you that you are going to engage his commandments with the power of the Holy Spirit, not without it. It's going to make a difference on whether you mature from basically the beast being susceptible to deception from the beast, or whether you will start marking your seven sevens up to Shavuot. So these 144,000, these are first fruits, by the way. If you remember, these are first fruits from the tribes. It doesn't mean they're the only ones. It means they're the first. Just like those sheaves of barley that were harvested represented the whole field. In fact, it represented every field in Israel because you couldn't eat barley anywhere in Israel until those sheaves were offered first. And then the rest of it was holy. Right? So don't think if you're not one of the 144,000, you're not going. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's using this to kind of provoke what you know about first fruits and how it represents the whole field and it makes the whole field holy. All right, let's slide down to verse nine. It says, then another angel, a third one followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, I know there's a lot been made of chips in the hand and tattoos on the forehead and all sorts of stuff that, you know, it, it fuels the conspiracy theories and it's like a roller coaster ride. It's terrifying and fun at the same time. But let's just make it simple. If scripture gave us simple answers to having a mark on your forehead and on your hand, why go in pursuit of something that high tech? If the answer was the same answer 6,000 years ago, <laughs> then why would he start changing answers on us now? It goes back to the sixth day of creation. The beast was created first on the sixth day, and then the human being on the sixth day. The older the beast was supposed to serve the younger, the human being. When we get that backward, when the human being made in the image of Elohim worships the beast aspect of who he is, he might confuse himself. Both human beings and animals have souls. But see, Adam was made according to the image of Elohim. The beast is supposed to reproduce after his kind. What does it say? Like five times it says after their kind, after their kind, after their kind, after their kind, after their kind. Well, obviously, Adam was not after the kind of the beast. He was not to conform to the image of the beast. But see, when we conform to the image of that lower mind, when we don't allow that perfecting to happen, right, between Passover and Shavuot, between the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, then you are vulnerable to conforming to the image of the beast. That's where you get the 666. They were created on the sixth day. And so the tefillin of the greatest commandment, where you shall uh, bind them on your hand, on your forehead, what's inside of there? Scriptures with the greatest commandment. So the, the very nature of the books, please go back and find the, the videos uh, on our YouTube channel. What's inside that box, 666 and the grace we missed so that you can see visually what I'm talking about when I describe the three-pronged sheen and the four-pronged sheen and how this one represents the letter of the Torah, this one represents the spirit of the Torah. You can't have one without the other. You have to have the letter with the spirit. You put them together, they equal seven, and you've got the perfect seven. But see, if you're just following the letter without the spirit, it's incomplete. You, you cannot be perfected. You can't go to the mountain and say, we will do and we will hear and then expect to have any degree of, of proficiency in doing it. You can't have just the spirit and no letter because the spirit works on it is written, not I feel. And so you will begin to confuse the way that you feel with what is written. We do it all the time. Don't laugh. <laughs> You've done it too. Well, if I didn't feel it, it must not be of God. Well, it may, you might not be feeling just because you don't want to. This is the way that, that the serpent deceived Eve. She wanted the fruit because she wanted the fruit. So. We have to be on our guard and say, hey, I have no business engaging the letter of the Torah without the Spirit. Because if I do that, how am I any better than a completely godless person who is doing what he wants to do? Well, if I'm just taking the word and ignoring it or just making it say what I want it to say, how am I any different than an atheist? So if you're worshiping the beast and his image and receiving his mark on your forehead or on your hand, it's a reflection, again, of rejecting the word of Adonai, both the putting the, the letter with the spirit. And it's telling us if, if we aspire, if we claim to obey the great commandment, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, 
and goes back to teaching your children, you know, when you lay down at night, when you rise up in the morning, when you lie down, what do you do? You say the greatest commandment in the first watch of the night. What do you do when you rise up in the first hour of the day? Hopefully uh, <laughs> you're going to say the Shema. You're going to say the greatest commandment. What's in those boxes? The greatest commandment. So basically having the mark of the beast is to set aside the greatest commandment and worship something else or someone else. It's to worship your own self-will. It might be in the person of another entity, another person. But truly, if, if you're following after that person or that thing, then it's just a reflection of what you wanted. So what is the name on the foreheads of the first fruits of the barley who are redeemed from the earth in Revelation 14? There's a really good chance, I think, that the name is Shaddai, that this El Shaddai that you see on, on the mezuzah, on the doorpost, this might be exactly the same name that's on the forehead of the first fruits. And it's saying, these are first fruits redeemed from the earth because they keep the letter of the Torah and the spirit of the Torah. They have the commandments of God and the testimony of Yeshua. They have these things. So let's slide down again. Verse 14. Then I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, I think we can pretty well identify this as Yeshua, one like a son of man. What was Yeshua? Well, he was like a son of man, but he was also the son of Adonai. He was the son of Elohim. So he's like a son of man, but he is the son of Elohim. He's, it says he's sitting on a white cloud. Now, in Hebrew, you got to understand if somebody's sitting, Yoshev, it's the very same word you would use to say they dwelled somewhere or they lived somewhere, like Jacob by Yeshev, he dwelled in the land. So this one like a son of man, I believe Yeshua, he is dwelling on the cloud and he has a golden crown on his head and he's holding a sharp sickle. Now, remember, a sickle is a tool you use to harvest grain, grain. You, it's, it's kind of blunt in terms of not its sharpness, but it's just, you can gather a whole bunch of stuff at one time, right? It's not meant to be a precision instrument. And it says, another angel came out of the temple, calling out with a loud voice to him who sat or who dwelled on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who dwelled on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. Now remember, what did they reap first? Where did they look first? The field closest to the temple. What did the temple symbolize? It was this permanent structure that before it was a permanent structure, it was a tabernacle. It was a tent. It was the tent of meeting. It was the focal point of the feasts of Adonai. So when you go out into the field, if, if you're looking for the harvest, you start your harvest closest to the temple because you want to hurry the commandment. Now we're reading this as though it happens in a second, in a moment, but it may not. Some things, it's like the twinkling of an eye, sha'ah in Hebrew, if I'm not mistaken, it can also mean a twinkling. So when something happens in the twinkling of an eye, it also means an hour. And an hour doesn't always mean 60 minutes. An hour can simply mean an appointed time. So the angel says the hour to reap has come. It doesn't mean that this sickle is going to bring in all the sheaves in an hour. 
It doesn't mean that he's going to bring all the sheaves in in a moment. It just means he's going to bring them in at an appointed time, at an action time. In fact, an hour can even be a month. <laughs> so, we'll, we'll, we'll review that, okay? But the one who dwelled in the cloud, he swung his sickle over the earth. The earth was reaped. Who do you think will be reaped first? The suggestion based on temple practice is those who were closest to the temple, those who were closest, say, to the tent of meeting, those who understand the appointed times, because these are the ones who are on the alert. So Yeshua says, you be on the alert, whether he comes in the second watch of the night or the third, you be on the alert. Why would you be on the alert if you had recited the Shema in the first watch of the night? If you had been one of those present there, if you had been one of those sheaves in the first watch of the night that's ready to be part of the first fruits, you be alert in all those watches, but never let the third watch pass by you without engaging that greatest commandment, acknowledging that there he is one. So Revelation 14, 4 through 16 is telling us, I believe that Yeshua is the one with the sickle in the cloud. And again, remember, it says, put in your sickle and reap. Do it fast. Do it fast. Not yes. Reap. Do it now. And what does he do? He hurries. He said, unless those days had been shortened for the sake of the elect, he hurries the time. He says, I'm coming quickly. Behold, I come quickly. You don't need to be lackadaisical when it comes to the feast. You don't need to be aloof. You don't need to be lukewarm. You don't need to be running back and forth, in and out, up and down, doing jumping jacks. No, get your feet in the feasts and engage them with all the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that command goes out, reap, Yeshua is not going to let that commandment sour into chametz. He's going to go quickly. And in this case, he's going to be reaping sheaves all the way to the end of the earth. He's going to hurry to perform this mitzvah. Now, this, this gives us a glimpse into this week's Torah portion, which is uh, a after the death of Nadav and Avihu. And you've got a bundle of items in this Torah portion that are all going to point to this angel with the power over fire that's going to follow the one like a son of man. Because in that Torah portion, you're going to have the death of Nadav and Avihu. You're going to have atonement on the altar of fire. You're going to have the commandments of Yom HaKippurim. In another place, you're going to find out, because it recounts this thing with Nadav and Avihu, you need to be sober. When you do your service in the temple, when you do your holy service, be sober. Don't be drunk. Don't be drinking. And it says, if atonement is not made on the altar, then the fire from the cloud over the ark can break out on the earth. Leviticus 16.11, it says, Aharon shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. 
and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger. How many times? Seven times. There's our perfect number. So it's about making atonement on that altar. And then if you'll make atonement on the altar, you progressively move inward toward this cloud. You become part of this cloud of incense, which is the prayers of the saints, obviously. And then in uh, verse 29, it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. All right, again, this atonement starts on the altar. It starts in the fire. And the work that's been done up to this point on Yom HaKippurim, you can see how critical it becomes for the nation. Because if we have been gathered in, let's just kind of set the intermediates aside for a while, the lukewarm. Let's say the elect, they've walked through that gate of Pesach. They've stood at the mountain and renewed the covenant at Shavuot. They've accepted that greatest commandment. It's on their forehead. It's on their arm. They've been sealed over according to the tradition. At this point, they are sealed. Remember the fall feast are for those who were not yet sealed over. That's why you say during that time, may your name be inscribed and sealed in the book of life. Let there be no doubt that this has already happened. Let this not be hanging over your head like a sickle between the Feast of Trumpets and Yom Kippur. So that's what it's saying in the seventh month and the 10th day of month. This is an important time. You can't forget it. You need this atonement from the altar of fire. And it's a Sabbath of solemn rest. You know, there, there are Jews throughout history who maybe they didn't worry about keeping any other commandments. I'm thinking, was it uh, maybe Sandy Kufax that he wouldn't play baseball on Yom Kippur? Well, this right here tells you this is a Sabbath of Sabbaths. This is your last chance. And if you haven't been keeping the Sabbaths, the weekly Sabbath, the high Sabbath of the Moedim up to this point, this is the day. If you have been lukewarm up to now, this is the day. Don't go to work. Don't eat. Don't drink. Afflict your souls. It's last chance. And if you remember, there's the seven assemblies of Revelation. Each of those is key to one of the seven feasts. When you reach the fourth assembly, of Revelation, which is Thyatira. Remember, it symbolizes Shavuot. And there's a warning there because it's right in the middle. It's the axis of the feasts. The giving of the Torah is the axis of all the feasts. And the assembly there at Thyatira is warned concerning sexual immorality, that if they don't repent, they're about to be thrown into great tribulation. In other words, if you don't get this right, if you don't get signed, sealed, and delivered at Shavuot, then you might find yourself over here in the fall feast in the seventh month in a last chance status. 
and realize too late that if you didn't repent of your sexual immorality and your idolatry, you're in jeopardy. That lukewarmness has landed you in a greater tribulation than, than you should have experienced. And as we continue on in the, the same Torah portion, Acharimut, Leviticus 16, 24 through 30, these are the, the vomit verses. I put vomit chapters. These are the vomit verses. It talks about, you know, the land vomiting you out, like it vomited out the Canaanites before you. And it's linking this sexual immorality to being vomited out of the land. Well, let's go back to these seven assemblies. The last assembly is Laodicea, responds to Sukkot. If it's the last feast, and you still, you, you didn't repent at the Feast of Trumpets. You didn't repent at Yom Kippur. You didn't rest on that Sabbath. Now you're going to arrive at Sukkot, which is when traditionally that those decrees which are sealed over at the closing of the gates of Yom Kippur, nothing happens immediately. But at Sukkot, it's said that the Holy One, he hands off those decrees from the throne to the angels who will execute them. And that is when the judgment false. This is when the things will begin to happen at Sukkot. And so the, the assembly of Laodicea, which corresponds to Sukkot, they are warned of a lukewarmness. And it says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're not, you're, you're, <laughs> you still haven't repented. I'm going to vomit you out goes back to the vomit verses of Leviticus. If there's sexual immorality that he warned them about at Shavuot, if it's still there, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. And this is when the grapes of wrath begin at Sukkot. And it's going to be signaled by the sharp sickle and the angel of altar fire. Because once Yeshua completes his reaping of sheaves and takes them back to their joyful tent, when he raises them up above Rome, above the kingdom of the beast, Revelation 14, 17 says another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire. Now, remember, we've been looking at Gideon and Sodom and Gomorrah because each of those stories has unleavened bread or barley, giving you kind of a... a Unleavened bread, Passover GPS. So remember, there's an angel that walks. There's three angels that approach Abraham and Sarah. One of the angels, or whoever he is, <laughs> he delivers the news that Sarah's going to have a child. She's going to have Isaac, a type of the Messiah, a type of the one who resurrects from the dead. And then the other two angels, they continue on. One of them is going to rescue Lot and his family, but the other is apparently an angel over fire. And remember, he told Lot, you got to get out of here because I can't do anything until you get out of here. I can't start this fire <laughs> until I get you, Mr. Lukewarm, out of the way. So does Lot share in the same reward? Does he have the shield and very great reward as Abraham? Doesn't look like it, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't saved. He and his daughters. 
this other angel, this one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So you see, we've arrived now at Sukkot. We've arrived at Laodicea. We have arrived at a place where you have either been gathered in the grain harvests by Yeshua and gathered into the cloud and you have been lifted up to sing praises of sacrifice to him, or you have remained and you are now about to be harvested like grapes at the season when typically the judgments begin that were uh, determined at the Feast of Trumpets and then sealed up at the conclusion of Yom Kippur. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia. There's our second fulfillment, the blood up to the horse's bridles. It happened when they followed a false Messiah about 130 AD, and it will happen again. People will follow a false Messiah. They will be lukewarm. They will, they will let their mitzvah go sour. They will delay too long in repentance. And this particular angel, you'll notice he's not using a pruning knife, which is the normal tool to gather grapes. It tells you these are a different kind of grapes. He doesn't care if he hurts these grapes. Because he's going to use a, a grain harvest sickle to just, I don't know what you would even call that, but just to wreak havoc upon the vineyard because they should have already been gathered in. They should be drinking the wine of joy at Sukkot. They should not be the wine of wrath at Sukkot. So this angel of fire, he's working just like the, the two angels of, that went to Sodom and Gomorrah. They are reaping the earth. And this is not the harvest you want to be in. You want to be a sheaf. You want to be with the barley sheaves. You want to be part of the, the two chalot, the two loaves of bread offered at Shavuot, because you have refined yourself in those perfect sevens. You have conformed yourself to the image of Elohim. And the beautiful thing about it is, no matter how hard we try sometimes, and this is you know what grace is for, we fall short. We do. We might think we're on the path of refinement and then we'll just have a big fail. I know I'm not the only one. We'll have a big fail. And we say, oh, do I know Yeshua or not? Do I really believe the greatest commandment or not? Do I really believe he's one and he's on the throne and he's going to judge me? How could I do such a thing? And yet I do it. But he knows I love him. Even as Peter denied Yeshua, he loved Yeshua. 
And we've done the same thing. Even as we have denied him with our behavior, he knows we love him. We're just weak human beings. But Peter didn't run away like Judas and hang himself. Peter hung in there and he came back with a lot more humility. And that's what we have to do. When we make a mistake, we come back with a lot more humility. And Baruch Hashem, he gives us his grace for those moments. And we can see there at that Yom Kippur in that seventh month, the value of that for the believer, for the elect. We might arrive there as a sheep and say, hey, I've still got some imperfections here. You know what? He fixes all that. He brings us, he transforms us at the Feast of Trumpets. Any residue, anything left over is going to be dealt with at Yom Kippur. And then we can go into Sukkot without spot or wrinkle and rejoice with him. So I hope that was an encouragement to you. Like I said, I know you'll go through Revelation 14 and you'll find lots more stuff in there. You, you might even want to reread the book of Ruth because it covers the distance between the first fruits of the barley harvest and the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Once you're aware that it's there, once you become aware of the feasts, then it becomes much easier, again, to read these books like Revelation. You can start to see the, the parallels. I'm sorry, it's getting late in the day here, and I did not get dessert at Onac. Uh, <laughs> I need a little more sugar. <laughs> uh, but I hope that is an encouragement to you. If you're just learning about the feast, do not be discouraged. You are on the right track. You're on the right track. Don't back up. Where else are you going to go? He has the words of eternal life. Don't back up. If all you know is a little bit about Passover, start there. If all you know is a little bit about the Sabbath, start there and say, Yeshua, what have I missed about who you are? And I will not quit. I'm going to seek you and I'm going to find you because I'm going to search for you with all my heart because I want to be in one of those fields close to the temple when the harvest starts. I want to be right there. I want to be one of those hurried commandments. I want to hurry to do the commandments because I want Yeshua to hurry to me when he comes with that sharp sickle. I want to, you know, right now, I think we've entered a period where people are less fractured and running out in every direction, trying to teach themselves everything and be all things to themselves and think they can fulfill every commandment alone. You can't. What else hangs with the greatest commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. How are you going to keep a peace by yourself? That destroys the whole nature of the feast. The feast is for you to gather. You can't keep a, a commandment by yourself as it concerns the feast. And so this is the beauty of the internet. Maybe the only way you can connect with other people and be a part of that, that sheaf or be a part of that little flock, maybe you found them on the internet. Maybe that's the, how you're communicating at this point. But if, if you identify with the group, you stay with that group and you walk together. You forge those relationships. And it'll help you grow. It'll help you to have an identity for the troubled times that are ahead. It will encourage you. 
and it will keep your feet moving toward Jerusalem. Um, I left you hanging with the times of the Gentiles. What does that mean? Because if, if you're like me, you've read about the times of the Gentiles all your life. As long as you've been reading the Bible, you've been reading um, two specific statements in the New Testament, in the Brit Chadashah. And in those uh, two contexts, Yeshua talks about the times of the Gentiles. And then Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he talks about the times of the Gentiles. And so when you hear a phrase like that, that it, it seems as though when they use that phrase, they're very familiar with it. And they're expecting the people who are listening to them or reading the letter, in the case of Paul, to already have some familiarity with that term, the times of the Gentiles. So the term did have a meaning. In the first century, that term did have a meaning. The, the problem is we just don't always know what it means because we're far removed. We're 2,000 years removed from the use of this phrase. Um, not that it's never used again. It is um, because it is a term that's defined within the Jewish literature. That helps us to understand what they had in mind when they used that phrase back in the first century. So if we can understand what it meant back in the first century, then uh, that will help us because we have, at the time that those words were written, the iron legs of the beast, you know, in Daniel's um, counsel to King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had an image of a, uh, a human being, you know, he had the golden head, you had the uh, the silver upper torso, you had the bronze lower torso, you had the iron legs, and then you had the mingled clay and iron feet and toes. And of course, the rock hewn out without hands came and it destroyed the feet, which brought the whole thing down. So that tells you it's during the era of the feet that King Messiah will return and destroy the image of the beast. Right. Now, Daniel also experiences this, not just in the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar, who thought he could fix that. See, the, the problem with King Nebuchadnezzar's vision was he was the golden head, but he could see in the vision that he would have successors. There would be king, there would be a kingdom that would displace him, would take his place, and then that one would be displaced, and then that one would be displaced. So each kingdom displacing the previous one and then reestablishing. And so he thought, there's got to be a workaround here. What if I make the image all of gold? Because he was the golden head of Babylon. What if I make the whole image of the man, which is also the image of the beast? What if I make the whole thing out of gold? And that way my kingdom would never end, especially if I could lure the representatives from all the nations to come in and to bow down and to worship this image. And that's exactly what he does. That was his workaround to the dream that Daniel clearly told him this won't work. Uh, making it out of gold, that didn't work either. Uh, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would not bow. Now, had they bowed, they being noblemen from the tribe of Judah, them being noblemen as representatives of Jerusalem, because remember, they they were sent into exile in Babylon before the complete fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem still existed as, as part of Judah at that time. It hadn't been completely wiped out. 
the kings of Judah had basically been buying off uh, the Babylonian king by sending certain things, sending goods, sending money, and sending the best of his people, like uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were noblemen. They were wise people. They were the smartest. They were the best, the best of the best, the best minds of Judah. So he sent those as an appeasement, as a bribe, basically, to pay off the king of Babylon. And so if they had bowed to this golden image, if they had bowed to the image of the beast, then theoretically, uh, the Jews of Jerusalem and therefore Israel would have been given over to the image of the beast. They would have lost that identity. They would have just been subsumed, subsumed among the nations uh, and irretrievably mingled. However, they did not bow and they did not burn. And so the king of Babylon had to acknowledge that he was not the king of kings and that the one like the son of man was there, uh, of course, to retrieve his own and to help them stand so that they would never bow to the image of the beast. He was succeeded. He was overthrown by the Persian Median kingdom. They're going to add some things to this blasphemous mouth of the lion. Remember in Daniel's vision? He sees uh, different animals, different beasts, whereas the first presentation we have is of a, the image of a human being. As Daniel has his vision, he sees this uh, image of the man as the image of a beast. And this is where you get in Revelation, the number of the beast is the same number as the man. You're just seeing it portrayed two different ways. And so this image of the man and the image of the beast like I say, two things describing the same thing. They represent the times of the Gentiles. And we'll work through this in more detail, but this is just an overview uh, to kind of help you see where we're going. So to, to help you wrap your mind around, what are you saying the image of the beast? Because I know there's a million and trillion and zillions of books out there on the book of Revelation, the image of the beast, 666, all this stuff. Uh, what I would like to do is, is bring the information forth from the most ancient of sources. And the most ancient, ancient of sources already know about this image of the beast. They already know that it's the number of a man because it's the two images. You have to put the two things together to understand why they share the same number. Of course, the beast and the man are created on the same day. That's one reason the number is 666. They're created on the same day. Um, just it's that one, we know that man was not created to conform to the image of the beast, but instead the man was created to conform to the image of Elohim. So this is the battle of the ages. To whom will mankind conform? Um, so we have these progressive kingdoms and each one will capitalize upon the achievements of the previous kingdom. So this pride, this haughty mouth of the lion um, that Daniel sees speaking blasphemies. And this was the, this is what the king of Babylon always wanted to do. And Isaiah, it, you hear his thinking very clearly because it, it says um, to the king of Babylon, you have said in your heart, I will lift my throne above the throne of God. 
I will sit on the Mount of the Moed. I'll sit on the Temple Mount. I will sit on the focal point of the Feast of Israel, which is what brings them together. Um, I will lift my height above the height of the clouds. I will raise myself above the height of the stars. The clouds, who is that? It's the great cloud of witnesses, the righteous, the stars, also the seed of Abraham. Abraham, count the stars if you're able. So it begins with the king of Babylon boasting these great things, that I will dominate the world, and this is how I will do it, and this is who I will dominate. Uh, the first thing on his checklist, apparently, is to take over the Mount of the Moed, to take over Jerusalem. And this is what the four beast kingdoms have in common. There's actually five, uh, if we get down to the feet and the toes, but there, there's a mingling there. But the four main beast kingdoms, uh, they each destroyed Jerusalem. This is why Assyria is not included in the image of the beast. Did they conquer Israel and, and carry off many of the northern tribes? Yes, they did. But they never took Jerusalem. So they're, they're not calculated among the, the beast kingdoms. They're not counted as part of the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles are marked by the, the successive kingdoms that both King Nebuchadnezzar saw and then Daniel saw represented by the various beasts. So he has the lion of Babylon. He has the bear of Persia Medea. Uh, and Persia Medea, by the way, is also called Elam in scripture. If you ever read Elam in scripture, you're looking at the general area of Persia Medea. And, and depending on what's being discussed in context, it might call it Persia. They might call it Elam, but same geographical area. But the Persians add to these uh, grandiose ideas of the king of Babylon, which is world domination. They add a sense of uh, unrivaled luxury. When we hear of Babylon the Great has fallen, fallen, and we see all the merchandise that the merchants of the earth are mourning over when the ships are destroyed. In the book of Revelation, they say, oh, Babylon the Great, she's fallen, fallen. Well, the it began with Babylon. This is the head or the origin of the beast. But this is what Persia comes in and adds in a, in a way unrivaled like ever before. If you watch some documentaries on Persia and Medea, you'll, you'll see that uh, later the Greeks looked down on them because they thought they reveled in luxury too much. They loved the nicer things of life. They loved the textiles. They loved the silver and the gold. Uh, they loved the art, uh, beautiful artwork on the walls of cities like uh, Persepolis, uh, Susa, Shushan. If you're reading in the book of Esther, they'll call it Shushan. Uh, at any rate, the the luxurious aspect of the beast, it became intensified under the, the Persians and the Medeans. And then what do you bring in with the Greeks? You bring in things like um, the art of war. The, the phalanx was quite an innovation in its time. You have the speed, the speed of Alexander's cavalry. Uh, you also have the systems of the Greeks that are instituted that give greater control over an empire. So they have philosophical 
systems, they have governmental systems, they have political systems, uh, literary systems, medical systems, sports, we get the Olympics today, and they introduce an idea also of mingling, because remember Greece, whereas you got the, the strength of Persia, it basically just could crush people mm. by brute strength. With the Greeks, you have the body of the leopard. And in some future weeks, I don't know when we'll get there, we'll look at the spots on the leopard and, and what they symbolize and why the spots on the leopard, they, they tell us exactly why this beast that is seen in Revelation is going to have the body of a leopard. Is because the Greeks were the experts at um, pulling people together and organizing them with systems, uh, organizations, the power of organization. Uh, you can prevail with a few and the power of organization over the many disorganized. And so the Romans come right behind them. They take those systems and they make them bigger, better. The Greek and the Roman gods, the same. They just had different names. The political systems, they take those over. We still have a Senate today in the United States. Uh, we still have uh, the judicial system. We have Latin. Of course, if you're going to study medicine or you're going to study law, you have to know Latin. So it's going to have been handed down from Greece to Rome. It's turned into Latin. And now the, the language of jurisprudence is Latin. The language of medicine is Latin. Uh, they handed off the sports. Now with uh, the Romans perfect, if, they, if the Greeks thought the Olympics were cool, look at what the Romans did with sports. And, and you can see that sick turn of the sports and uh, how addicting it was, how it helped you control the masses. Uh, you know, if, if you can keep them arguing about why the coach didn't pull so-and-so out of the game at, at such and such minute, then they certainly won't be discussing the finer points of the Torah. Uh, if they're worried about <laughs> whether the track at the Kentucky Derby is sloppy today, they probably won't be worried enough to, to come, you know, learn Torah portion Kedoshim today. But this is very subtle. The more systems you can offer people, sports, medicine, political, economic, the organization can make things more proficient, but it also morphs into a way to control large numbers of people, to turn large numbers of people in any direction that you would wish. And this is exactly what we see with the times of the Gentiles is these systems will be perfected and used. And you can't just say it's a religious system. It's not. Religion is only one system out of the many. And this is the leopard spots. The leopard spots are going to show you the organization of the beast and how it's, it's not an in-time thing. It's merely being brought to the end of its time as a thing, because it's been handed down successively from beast kingdom to beast kingdom. So by the time we get down to the feet and the toes, even though you don't have a world empire, nevertheless, the iron is mingled among the clay, clay representing people. 
And so the, the influence of every one of those systems has now seeped into the entire earth. You've got the feet and then you've got the 10 toes. And so at the, the point where it looks like those systems are at the strongest, what we will see plainly is that this is when they are at their most vulnerable because this is when they have arrived at the end of their time. Days are up. Um, there's a measurement of time that's being made in heavenly places. And once that time is fulfilled, and, and that's what we want to talk about today. Why are there the times of the Gentiles? What's the purpose of the times of the Gentiles? Because Paul says something kind of cryptic. He says that a, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, I'm not going to begin to debate you, to debate you on what that hardening looks like. But we do see it's part of a divine plan so that these times of the Gentiles can be fulfilled. That's what we want to look at. How will we know? And why did they even get time? Why couldn't Yeshua do everything back when he came the first time? Why does he have to come back 2,000 years later, approximately? Why couldn't he do it the first time? Well, it's this principle of the times of the Gentiles. And I, I want to introduce, if you've never heard of that, I want to introduce you to the concept behind that, okay? First, we're, we're going to review a little bit, and then we'll hop off into it. Here we go. And what we're going to do, we're, we're going to try to merge this with the Torah portion, Kedoshim, which is holies, right? Obviously, if it's, it's talking about the times of the Gentiles, a Gentile is someone who is not in the present day understanding Jewish, uh, but in a more general way, a Gentile is someone who is not an Israelite by birth. And we're going to look at th three different ways of uh, three different names for a Gentile, because sometimes I'm running to people for some reason, if you say Gentile, they get really upset as though that's a pejorative, as though that's an insult that they would be called a Gentile. And it, it's one of those things you can't be more precious than scripture. You can't be more righteous than scripture. And if scripture is going to use these different terms for a non-Jew or a non-Israelite by birth, then it's okay if we use it because it is sometimes used as a pejorative doesn't mean it's always used that way, right? Uh, I know it steps on some doctrinal toes sometimes to say that, but I think that's important because if we get offended before we get into context, we're, we're kind of um, limiting the benefit that we can get from the scriptures, right? <coughs> so let's go to Leviticus 19. And the whole Torah portion, of course, is going to be Leviticus 19, 1 through 20, 27. But Kedoshim, I think, is going to help us clarify this, this question of the, the Gentile or the stranger. Like I said, we'll look at three different words that where you can categorize a stranger or a Gentile, and each has a, a different use. But what we'll find out is that the, the stranger or the ger is the one from among the nations who has chosen to draw in. They're, they're on a path moving inward toward the covenant. So they may not have a 100% identity yet as a covenant person, but that's the direction they're moving. It's just a matter of time till they reach that destination. If we look at, say, uh, Cornelius in the book of Acts. 
What is he doing? He's going to the synagogue. He's giving alms to the Jews. He's on a path in, not on a path out. He's not creating sunlight. or He's not creating daylight between himself and the Jews. He's diminishing the daylight between himself and the Jews. So we'll look at that in context and, and clarify it. So we, we're, we have a good understanding of the times of the Gentiles, how we're supposed to even think about that. Okay, so I call that the stranger question. So let's look at a couple of passages. This first one is Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. And uh, I want to clarify in this text what scripture is calling in English a stranger, a gare. This is the, the classification you want to have. If you're going to be a Gentile, this is the type of Gentile you want to be. It says, when a stranger, and the Hebrew word there is ger, sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger, the ger, who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers, gerim, in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So you can see when he uses the word ger, The implication here is this is the person moving into the community. He now is identifying with that community. And it's so important that he be welcomed into that community that some real estate is taken right here in Vayikra in Leviticus. It says, don't do him wrong. You're going to have to treat him. You have to love him as you love yourself. He's one of you. Right? Even though he was not among you by birth, he has chosen to come and dwell among you to join himself to the covenant. And just in case we weren't really clear about how we were supposed to treat this kind of Gentile, he says, I am the Lord your God. It is basically because I said so. You might think that they're unclean, they're unfit. And at this point, I just, I have to push the most wonderful Becky book, Becky book, B-E-K-Y, if you want to look it up, written by Dr. Robin Gould. And it's called Peter's Vision, Beacon or Bacon. It's worth looking that up. Peter's Vision, Beacon or Bacon. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.